Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I'm very excited. I'm here in my new digs overlooking Santa Monica Boulevard, the golf course, the Hollywood Hills, the Santa Monica and Little Santa Monica signs. And I'm sitting here with Jeff Gaspin, and I'm really excited about it because, and, and as you know me, I don't get excited about that many things, especially my voice is far from exciting. I said to him, it's my second podcast in this new space, and my first podcast here was Warren Littlefield, and now I get another man who was at the peak of NBC and has done so many things. As you know, I always look at my guests and I think to myself, what am I going to say? I never plan anything. I think I know where I'm going to go with this. But I first, I want to say thank you so much, everybody, for tuning into this podcast. This past week has been amazing. The ratings for the podcast have been in the top 30, and that's due to you, and I appreciate your support. It's amazing. Nobody knows who I am, or mostly a lot of people don't know who my guests are, but apparently there's something in here that means something and moves you, and that's why I do this in my spare time, and I I love it. Also, uh, thank you for clicking on that Amazon banner on my website. That really helps the Jewish Boy College Fund. It doesn't cost you any more, and it helps me and the boys, so thank you. Who got to meet Dennis Rodman the other day, which was shocking to see Dennis Rodman meet my kids and realize that is possibly my future. But anyway, I look at uh, Jeff Gaspin, and I say to myself right now, and I got the opportunity 
to meet Jeff Gaspin for the first time in his offices in 2003 at NBC. And he had come from VH1. I believe he came back from VH1. He'd been at NBC before. And he was overseeing a lot of different things, but one of the things he was overseeing was alternative programming or non-scripted programming and trying to make a difference on the network. I remember I had been out with Jay Moore trying to sell a show about comedians and failed miserably at many different networks putting it together. And as odd as it was, this very unique thing happened where I don't even really know how it happened, but socially, Jay and I met up with a person who was at Peter Engel's company. And at the time, Peter Engel, who has done the podcast here and remains in one of the highest rated podcasts we have, was known for Saved by the Bell. He was known for all these shows, these kids shows that had very little edge. Uh, they were all scripted. They were Saturday morning type programs. And he just had something about him. He had an enthusiasm and he believed that he could get this done and help us sell the show. It was a fascinating thing because you can't possibly believe that somebody who has no link to anything having to do with any semblance of a show like this could do it. But oftentimes you meet with people, they're very convincing. The guy had six shows in syndication. I don't think he had a relationship with Jeff per se, but he just had a way about him, a salesmanship about him and a calmness about him at the time that really made us feel comfortable and we figured everybody had passed on the show why don't we give it a shot and you were the guy who were always tooling things in the room and I think that's what always blew me away with you is that you always took the time and walking in your office I always felt comfortable because in back of your couch you had the Andy Warhol-esque paintings of your children which was really incredible and every time I walked in I was reminded of how you as a father were and how challenging and great a father you were because I believe if I'm not mistaken one of your children or if you had twins were born on September 11th Yes, I have. They weren't twins. I have three children, two boys and a girl. But my oldest son, who's now 23, his birth date is is September 11th. It's he wasn't born in 2001. He was actually born in uh, 1992. But we had just moved out to Los Angeles a month before 9/11. We were New Yorkers, so it was it was very traumatizing for everybody, but for us in particular because we had promised our families that were that stayed back east that we'd fly back and forth as much as possible so they, you know, my mom could see her grandchildren because my youngest was 3 when we moved out here and my oldest was when we moved out here and within a month of moving out here we really couldn't fly back and forth all that readily so it was it was it was very difficult but I had to take my son to Toys R Us on 9-11 in 2001 and and you know offer him the opportunity to you know to pick out his presence and there was nobody in the store but but one person behind the cash register and I think there was somebody out back not a single person in the store but myself my son and that one cashier and it was very surreal and um, it's very hard to celebrate a birthday on 9-11 you know even now 
That's why I always felt for you. I would walk in and there was like this humility that I felt about you, even though you were in a position of power. And you had this huge couch in your office that literally was the size of Rhode Island. You would sit down and you would just get lost in the couch. I, even me, the large hulking Jew that I am, would just be... But you always treated everybody in the room like they they belonged and they were somebody special, even if you didn't know if how they belonged or how they were going to be a part of it or what they did. But you saw something in this idea, Last Comic Standing, and you took the risk with Comic House, which wasn't that big a risk because I believe the pilot was very low budget. But you saw some of the comics and their interactions there, and you were always the kind of guy who sat in a room at every incarnation of Last Comic Standing, and you had great ideas. I always felt that you were one of the first guys I ever met with who was more of an executive producer than an executive at a network. I always felt like you added so much to every single thing that we did, and your ideas were always very well received and did very well, and it was a testament to you. When I look back, and the most simplest form of the show, the one that was the most simple and unique and authentic, the first season, which was totally under your guidance and your tutelage was nominated for an Emmy Award. And I remember how you treated everybody and how you went with the process. And I also remember strategically how you decided to move forward because I know Fox was very competitive and they were always trying to figure out ways to take out NBC or take out things. And I believe that you found out that Fox was trying to develop a similar idea in comedy and you had like this master publicity plan or whatever it was where you told us look I'm going to go forward with this and we're going with an article in the trades tomorrow and we were like why are we rushing an article of trades we're rushing an article of trades because we want to one up the competition. Well, well, sometimes you you know in this business you have to stake your claim, or you have to you know you have to be like an animal in the woods and you have to pee on your territory, uh, and you try to do it before the other guy does. Sometimes it dissuades them from from going forward. Sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but when you're in a very competitive situation, you have to you know you have to take all the use all the tools available to you. And sometimes publicity really helps because oftentimes, especially in the entertainment business, people don't like to be second. They want to feel like they're innovative. They want to feel like they're they're the first one in, in, a, in, a, in a space. So sometimes announcing that you're doing something actually does dissuade others to stay away. And it, again, it depends on what stage of development the various uh, competitors are in. Um, but I do appreciate uh, your comments about creativity. I, I do consider myself a creative person. And interestingly, since I'm not a writer, it's very hard to be a creative person in the scripted space. But in the non-scripted space, if you're creative, um, you actually can develop shows. And um, and I do pride myself on the fact that, that I think I'm good at developing shows, not only other people's shows, but my own. Um, I did, uh, when I was running VH1 back in the mid-90s, I created a show called Behind the Music, uh, which became a milestone show for that network, and I was nominated for two Emmys for that show. Um, always interesting because we were beaten out one year by um, um, American Masters, which was on PBS, and the episode that beat us was American Masters on Alfred Hitchcock, who <laughs> was an American. <laughs> so I always found that kind of ironic, but um, uh, you know, 
Unscripted really was uh, an opportunity for me to show my creativity in this business. Um, much harder to do on the scripted side when you're not a writer. Absolutely. And so I think the last thing I'll say when it comes to Jeff in terms of this cold open, which is unique because I like the dialogue and the back and forth, is the fact that I found that when I went in there, he was one of the few guys who treated everybody in the room welcoming and gold. There never seemed to be a time limit. And he was always a guy who would give his ideas and present them in a way where you never felt overwhelmed or you never felt like this guy's stepping on our toes. And then when it came right down to it, for all of us, when we were really into it, he was the kind of guy who let the people work and the artist work and he got out of the way at the times when he knew it was important to get out of the way. And I think that's one of the things that's really important for any executive or anybody in the business is to be able to figure out how to navigate in those spaces because egos are fragile and there's a lot of different people who have a lot of different agendas and they forget that y'all have the same common goal to win, to have a successful show, but everybody seems to want to have their fingerprints on things and everybody wants to seem more valuable than they are. And I thought it was great how Jeff was able to navigate with every personality and make them feel like a million bucks. So my feeling is, is if you're listening to this, is in anything you're doing, these are the qualities that are going to take you where you want to go. It's no coincidence, once I read the bio of Jeff, that you'll see all the things he's done. He does all these things. He's been involved in all these things because he knows how to navigate. He knows how to treat people with respect. He knows how to deal with different personalities. And he also knows the right time to get out of the way. And I can guarantee you, if you're doing any job in this world, if you can follow those mantras, I think you're going to be doing very, very well in your profession. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You're firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it. 
because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very excited. My guest today, Jeff Gaspin. This guy is a behemoth in the business. A 800, probably a 900-pound gorilla. He's done so many things. His bio was so long. Literally, Tolstoy would be looking at this saying, yeah, this is a walk in the park here. But uh, I'm going to keep reading it, and I'm going to go for it and try to relax, put your feet up. And then we'll go. In March 2014, Gaspin launched TAP, an over-the-top subscription platform connecting niche personalities with their super fans. Gaspin raised venture funds from investors including Discovery Communications, Eric Schmidt, and Ken Molis. Gaspin serves as chairman of this venture and was named an Innovator of the Year by The Wrap for his work in this platform. In 2012, he formed Gaspin Media, a production consulting and new media company. The firm's clients include AETN Networks, Discovery Networks, Clear Channel Communications, ITV Studios, Pilgrim, as well as several private equity firms. He was the executive producer for four series in 2015, Barmageddon for True TV, Match Made in Heaven for We TV, Fit to Fat to Fit for A&E, and an updated version of To Tell the Truth for ABC. Additionally, Gaspin Media has over a dozen projects in development for broadcast and cable television. Prior to forming Gaspin Media, he was chairman of NBC Universal Television Entertainment from 2009 through 11, whose television portfolio generated more than $10 billion in revenue and nearly $3 billion in operating profits. Amazing. He was instrumental in the acquisition of The Voice, which is one of the highest rated shows on television right now, and Cable's top-rated USA Network, Sci-Fi, Bravo, Oxygen, Telemundo, and many more. He was also involved in television production companies Universal Media Studios, which did House, 30 Rock, Law & Order, SVU, a universal cable production such as Psych, Royal Pains, and many, many more, including Access Hollywood, Deal or No Deal, and Maury. From February 2007 to June 2009, Gaspin was president and COO of NBC Universal Television Group, where he was involved in their early efforts to create the wildly successful online program content site Hulu. Cable Entertainment Group experienced dynamic change under Gaspin's leadership, and in 2007, the group acquired Oxygen, and in 2008, it sold its interest in the Sundance Channel and established the Universal Cable Productions television studio, further bolstering the company's commitment to a strong cable programming production and distribution portfolio. Each channel broke ratings records year after year under Gaspin's guidance, and the revenues and profits exhibited quadruple growth. 
Gaspin also represented NBC previously and had served as president of the NBC Universal Cable and Digital Content. Under his leadership, the NBC Universal Entertainment Division performed better than ever, and he was an early proponent of online streaming video traffic, all the television groups, entertainment websites, which more than doubled while he was there. In 2002, he was named president of Bravo, and when the network was acquired by NBC, among his accomplishments during that time were the amazing show Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, which changed the face of the network and was Bravo's highest-rated show in its 23-year history. He also developed Project Runway, which is still going on today, which also broke records. During his time at Bravo, he increased its subscription base from 68 million to 80 million and more than doubled the revenue and profits of the networks. Prior to his role at Bravo, he was executive vice president of alternative series long-form specials at NBC, where he developed the hit NBC programs Deal or No Deal, The Apprentice, The Biggest Loser, and of course what we talked about, Last Comic Standing. He made a name for himself at VH1 prior to this, serving as executive vice president of production and programming, and he created the acclaimed program, as he mentioned, Behind the Music, which was a staple for the network for years and was twice Emmy-nominated for his work. He joined the channel in 1996, and VH1's ratings more than doubled, and its profits increased fivefold. You see a pattern, everybody? Under his watch, he also did Divas Live, the hit series pop-up video, Rock and Roll Jeopardy, Storytellers, and Before They Were Rock Stars. Before VH1, during his first stint at NBC, Gaspin helped develop and launch Dateline NBC and was responsible for the expansion franchise of the Today Show to seven days. He started his career in NBC in finance and served as director of financial planning for NBC News, overseeing the production and finance for Late Night with David Letterman and Saturday Live, as well as for NBC's TV station divisions. The Anti-Defamation League at the Entertainment Industry Awards honored Gaspin with the 2010 Humanitarian Award, and Gaspin also received the GE Chairman's Overall Leadership Award in 2008, and the GE Leadership Award in the Imagination category for his work on Bravo NBC in 2003. He also served on the boards of the A&E Television Networks, the Paley Center for Media, the National Cable and Television Communications Association, and NBC Universal. Long bio, but let me tell you, everybody, can you believe all that this guy has done? Please welcome my guest. I'm very honored, Jeff Gaspin. Thank you, Barry. I think I need to trim that a little bit. You trimmed it. I believe I it or not, you already I, trimmed it a bit. I trimmed like half of it off, and it still was like uh, 17 <laughs> minutes long. It's unbelievable. Can you believe that you've done all that stuff? Uh, you know, some of it feels like yesterday and some of it feels like it never happened. So, What yeah. feels like yesterday and what feels like never happened? Oh, I still remember my, my days at VH1, um, which were probably uh, the best years of my career. It was, um, it was in the uh, mid-90s. I, I was there from 96 to 2001, and um, I just... I just had a, you know an incredible time. It was my first real opportunity to head up a programming division for any network, cable or broadcast. Now, how do you get the gig? 
when you don't have any experience really doing that. I was a finance guy for the first five years of my career. And then actually at NBC News, I had the opportunity to move into a more creative role. Um, I was the CFO of NBC News in um, it was around 1987, 1988. And um, one of the things we identified was in order for NBC News had, at the time had lost a lot of money, like $100 million a year. And what we realized is the only way to become profitable as a news division is to have a prime time show. And while 60 Minutes was hugely successful at CBS and ABC had 2020, NBC had not successfully developed a primetime show ever. And so we realized the only way we were going to become a profitable news division was if we could create a primetime network show. And so um, my boss at the time, who was uh, a mentor and a, and a wonderful, uh, wonderful guy named Michael Gartner, uh, said, you're one of the few people, you're the only person, is what he said, in this news division that actually watches TV, that actually is trying to be a student of television. And I want you to move from finance to programming, and I want you to head up our programming department here at NBC News. And I said, well, that's all well and good, uh, but you don't know anything about programming, and I don't know anything about programming, so how are we going to make this successful? And he said, I have an idea. And I want you to go visit my friend Dick Ebersol, who is a, a legendary uh, producer and uh, president of NBC Sports. And he goes, and Dick has a plan for you. And so I went up to see Dick Ebersol, who was on, I think I was on the third floor, he was on the 11th floor. And Dick said, so, so my, my best friend in the whole world is Brandon Tartikoff. And for anyone listening, and, and Barry, you certainly know, Brandon was a truly a programming legend, um, was responsible for um, uh, NBC's you know, 18 years at number one, uh, starting in 1984. They weren't number one in 1984, but he, he helped create, under Grant Tinker at the time, um, a show called The Cosby Show, which is now an infamous history memory, but at the time was really, um, was really innovative and incredible. Anyway, Brandon um, was a legendary programmer, a legendary NBC programmer, and I was uh, living in New York at the time. NBC News was housed in New York, and uh, they put me on a plane, and they said, go visit Brandon Tartikoff. And so I went to visit Brandon Tartikoff, and Brandon said, which, which, which you, you just have to understand, for at the time, I was thinking I was about 28 or 29 years old, and um, to meet Brandon Tartikoff, if you are interested in television, is like meeting the president if you're interested in politics or you just live in the country. And Brandon um, was the youngest television president in history. Truly a visionary and also a terrific guy. And, and Brandon said, look, just stay out here with us for six months. Um, be a fly on the wall. Learn what we do as programmers. And so when you go back to your division in New York, you'll at least have some idea of how it works and what we do. And that's what I did. And I stayed out here. I stayed at the Oakwood Apartments um, in Berkeley. Bank, which is fairly famous because those apartments every year there's a pilot season which goes from like January 1st to May May 1st and what happens now at the Oakwood Apartments is all kids and parents from all over the country who want to try out audition for pilots at the networks go live in the Oakwood Apartments and it but back then it was actually like a home for Hell's Angels so uh, it was an interesting place for me to live but I lived there for six months and I got to work with terrific people like Kevin Riley who has also become a legendary programmer ran NBC programming ran Fox programming uh, is now at Turner, uh, Jamie Tarsus, who you know, who uh, ran programming at NBC. Um 
then to ABC, and now as a successful independent producer. So I got to work with and meet some of uh, some of the most terrific uh, development executives. There, there's there's tons more that uh, that I'm not mentioning, and 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 marketing executives, uh, John Miller and Vince Manzi, who were were legendary NBC marketing executives. And I really, it, it, surprisingly, in the six months I was there, I really took in a lot and learned a lot. And Preston Beckman was head of scheduling, um, and I learned a ton from him as well. So I got tutored by some of the some of the most talented people in the business when I was young and I took that skill set back to back to New York and um, and I think it wasn't so much the skill set that I brought back to New York with me it was the relationships that I brought back so when it was time to put a new news magazine on the air on NBC which it actually wasn't Dateline at first it was a show called uh, Real Life with Jane Pauley and then another show called Expose but when it was time to put those on the air, I was able to call up all my new friends at NBC Entertainment and ask for promotion time, ask for support, ask for, for their help to make sure these shows were gonna be successful. And while the first two weren't, the one after that, which became Dateline, which is Dateline, and has been on the air, I believe, for 23 years, um, has been the most successful news magazine in the history of NBC. And I think that was because of all the friendships and relationships that, that I made in the six months that I was out here in L.A. that I could then use to help and collaborate to make this a success. And I think you mentioned it earlier, um, but for me, collaboration is so vitally important. And any, anyone who thinks they're the only one that created success probably um, you know falls in in some sort of narcissism uh, psychosis because it really takes a lot of people to to have success um, from from everybody who works on the show to everyone who promotes the show or everyone who markets the show um, or shows and so I, you know I learned early on that that if you if you if you make friends with the right people um, and you've invest them in your success and the success of the show you're trying to launch, you have a much better shot than if you, you're trying to do it alone. Now, here's what's interesting. You made all these new friends, all about the relationships. We always talk about this on the show. And then your first venture out is either Expose or well, the was, Jane Pauly yeah, show. Correct. And so you invest all their efforts, and then the first thing you roll out with doesn't work and gets canceled right and then you have to go back to these relationships and say i know i, I haven't been here long and i know my first effort failed but will you do it again for me with the jane Polly show and so they do it again yep. and it fails again and then you got to go back to them again and say hey i know i just came here and i know i'm new and i know i've failed twice but here's my third offering dateline will you get behind that how did you get people to get behind you when you'd failed twice before right well i think what everybody realized and th saw was that there was some great content in both of those they were half hours that were paired back to back and i think what everyone realized was that there was still terrific programming there was terrific investigations in expose um, and in the jane Pauley show there were terrific humanitarian pieces and what everyone kind of real what we all kind of realized was having them in two separate shows one show was a little soft and one show was a little hard and so the thought was is if we combine the two we can have a better balance in a full hour so we could have both heartfelt stories that Jane liked to do and we could have 
hard investigations that um, I'm not, I think it was a guy, Brian Ross, who actually is a terrific investigative reporter. He liked to do. And so we ended up with Jane Pauley and Tom Brokaw. Tom had hosted uh, expose and Jane hosted Real Life with Jane Pauley and we combined them and ended up having the two of them host the show which was actually a really strong one-two punch in terms of appeal to an audience because Jane and Tom were both beloved television anchors back then and obviously throughout their careers um, and so combining the two doing both heartfelt pieces and more um, news oriented um, investigation type pieces really was the right formula. I don't have to tell you this. Let's say you have two sitcoms back to back. Let's say it's Everybody Loves Raymond and King of Queens. And let's say collectively, just for the sake of argument, they're not working and the ratings are low. There isn't a network president or executive in the world that is going to go into a meeting with all the executives and say, I got a great idea. Let's take Ray and Kevin and put them together in their own show, and that show will be successful. They would laugh you out of the office. So how did you convince people or were part of a team that convinced people that the both of them together would work? I, 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 think, I don't think it was convincing as much as it was a commitment by the company to make sure NBC News had an hour of prime time. So perhaps, and, and I'm sorry, my, my memory is a little fuzzy on this, perhaps it was more out of necessity than actual belief in the show itself. I think um, it, was, it was probably our best guess at what we should do, given what we had to work with, um, plus the commitment of NBC and another terrific uh, um, visionary executive, Bob Wright, who really wanted to see uh, NBC News succeed. And so he was committed to making sure we had an hour of prime time. And so I think knowing that we had the slot, it was just a question of what we put in it. And... Um, and that's what we came up with, and it turned out to ultimately be the right formula. But I will say, um, stories like this, while you don't exactly, you'd never combine two sitcoms and hope that you have a success in the combination. There were, there's, there's many, many stories of sitcoms, especially back in the 80s and 90s, that didn't work right away, but the executives saw something in them and believed something about them. Seinfeld, you know, certainly being uh, an example. Uh, Cheers was an example. And then more recently, The Office. I was there when The Office was developed, and, and I remember, um, you know, Kevin Riley and, and uh, another executive, Angela Bromstead, were huge supporters of it. It was only on for six episodes and it had not done a rating. I think it it had like a short run and I, I, I wasn't involved in the decision other than I was part of a team of executives that got to voice their opinion on, on many of these things. Um, and uh, and I remember, I remember just Kevin and Angela being incredibly supportive. Um, at the time, my boss was not Jeff Zucker was not supportive. Um, I I was not, I was on the fence. I, I liked the show, but I didn't think it was it was. Uh, felt um, too alternative. But was it hard because Jeff Zucker was in news, so you were a guy who was in these meetings where you were offering an opinion, and you have Jeff Zucker who started in news, so was it hard to express your opinion one way or the no, other? No, not at all, because Jeff and I actually met at NBC News many, many years earlier. Um, Jeff was 
I was, I'm four years older than Jeff, so Jeff was like 25 years old, I was 29 years old, and Jeff became the executive producer of the Today Show. Um, and it was unheard of at the time to put a 50-year-old, let alone a 25-year-old or 26-year-old in charge of, of such a big franchise and such an, ex, an extraordinarily profitable franchise. Um, but this, this, this boss of ours that I mentioned earlier, Michael Gartner, um, was, was willing to take risks. He certainly took a risk with me when he moved me from finance to programming, and he took a risk, risk with Jeff when, he, when he, he took him from, I think he was a researcher uh, on the show, and then he went to supervising producer, and then very quickly became executive producer. But then, you know, that turned out to be a brilliant move, and Jeff had one of the most successful runs of anybody I've, you know, I've ever met or seen in, uh, in television news especially. Um, and for 10 years, he was executive producer of that show, and I believe they were number one just about every week of those 10 years. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of takeaway in a story like that, but, but I think the most important one is taking risks. You know, if you see something you believe in, you have to see something and you have to have the gut for it, and you, but you have to see something. And so whether it's an executive like Jeff that, or, or myself, or whether it's a show and there's a talent in the show or a writer on the show that you just know has the talent, it might not, all the moons might not have aligned this time around, it doesn't mean you should throw it all away. That's a really, really important lesson. And so, you know, Many shows that don't launch right away need advocates. And you need advocates that have strong voices that are, you know, that will, will stick up for something. They won't back down. And they'll actually do it to the point where they're actually starting to risk their own credibility. But that's what, that's what sometimes, not all the time, sometimes shows like Empire just take off on day one. But oftentimes, you need an advocate, you need people who believe in it, and you need executives who are experienced to know that sometimes it happens this way. Tell our audience a show that you fought for, you took a risk on, that a lot of the executives in the conference room were shaking their heads saying, come on, Jeff, drinking the wrong kind of coffee today, maybe and they became very successful. And tell us something that you really took a risk on, fought hard for, and it just didn't work. You know, I'm, I'll separate unscripted from scripted because it's a slightly different path. On the unscripted side, there really weren't a ton of shows that didn't succeed, especially early on in, in the unscripted world. I, I mean, I remember we did a show called Fear Factor. And um, Joe Rogan. There, yeah, there, there were not a lot of supporters of Fear Factor. It was gross. It was disgusting, which was all very true. Um, but it was there was nothing like it on television, and I remember the first time I screened it, I showed Jeff Zucker, who was the president of NBC Entertainment by then. He had moved from NBC News to NBC Entertainment. I showed it to him, and we were literally watching it and screaming. Like, two grown men were screaming out loud to the point where anyone who was walking by Jeff's office started to come in to see what was going on. Why are these two, two grown men screaming like little girls? And everyone would walk in and they'd look at this TV set and there were probably spiders crawling on somebody's head or cockroaches. And everybody started screaming. And, and you know, well, it just had such a, we got such a visceral reaction out of it. We, you know, we were like, just go for it. We're just going to go for it. And, um, and obviously that became, uh, I think it ran for nine years and was 
incredibly successful. But as I think about it, the show that, not so much the show, but, but the title of the show that was the most controversial in my career was a show called Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. And Queer Eye for the Straight Guy was, was actually a terrific show. And anybody who watched it re- thought it was a terrific show. But they hate, most people hated the title. Um, ad sales was afraid of the title. They thought that advertisers would stay away from a show with the word queer in it. Um, queer, was queer was somewhat derogatory ba- back in back then, 2004, wasn't it like 2005. Close to the N-word. I, I would say, it, yeah, it was kind of a Q word, but not necessarily as bad as the N-word. But, um, but, but um, the producers were, were gay, and, and they weren't offended. And, and, and so what I did was, and I, I, I called our PR guy, and, and um, I said, what, you know, how should we handle this? What do you think we should do? And they suggested, well, let's call GLAAD. Let's call Glad and see what they think. Let's see if, you know, if they're gonna are they gonna come out and support the show because because it was a groundbreaking show in that you never saw a show on the air at that time like that. Um, five gay leads. I can't think of a show before it or or even after it that was like that. And um, it was you know such a groundbreaking show for the producers um, at the time. And um, and the producers and 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 the network contacted Glad and Glad came back and said, you know, interesting. Interestingly, the gay community was trying to make queer an acceptable term. And it was actually part, you know, it, at the time, it was something that they didn't want it to be an offensive term. They wanted it to be a term of endearment. Like, it didn't, it didn't have to have the negative connotation. And so they were very supportive. And as a result, you know, we decided we're keeping this title. Um, it also, the, the title itself was a, you know, it created curiosity, which I think is really important in, when you're trying to launch a show. And it was controversial and, you know, and, and so we went with it. And it turned out to be, you know, the, the right move because that show uh, became the highest uh, rated show in Bravo's 23-year history. It helped brand the network. It helped give Bravo a kickstart. And, and Bravo at the time was making about $50 million a year. Um, and I believe Bravo today probably makes over $500 million a year. So it was a terrific start. Um, and, it, and it started to give us a brand for Bravo, which was innovative, create, you know, things you've never seen before. And um, it's always great when, when a show like that, you know, surprises everybody and becomes not just a hit, but a cultural phenomenon. I'm looking at the patterns with you a little bit here. And... If you notice, NBC, no experience at all. You come in and you start working on things that you admit, you know, I have no idea. I'm just going my gut. Then you get the Bravo and one of the first big shows and the biggest show in the history of the network involves a cast of gay people and you're not gay. And you're involved in this world of trying to figure out how this show is going to come together and your gut tells you it's going to go. How did you know who was going to be right for what when you weren't even in this world? Well, I mean, I, I think, I, I, I honestly, I don't think that has much to do with it. I think you cast, you know, I'm not a woman and, you know, I've cast women in roles. And mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I, don't think, um, I don't think that matters all that much. Um, it was an, you know, it, it, it was, it was a show and a title that 
just sort of sparked curiosity. And um, there was a gr- you know I, there were a great group of executives that that we actually when we bought Bravo, Queer Eye was actually in development. So it was a show that was sort of handed to me by the executives that had developed it and said, here's a show we think is kind of interesting. And I looked at their development and they had five or six pilots. And that was the only show that seemed like it was different and would stand out and would have um, would have a shot. I, I wasn't I didn't even think it was going to be successful as much as I thought it would bring attention to the network. And for me, it was about bringing attention to the network because nobody heard of Bravo. Nobody knew of Bravo. There was a show, um, the one successful show they had was um, Inside the Actors Studio. Terrific show. And James Lipton, who's, I believe, 93 today, because <laughs> I actually looked him up not that long ago. Uh, you know, what a, what a wonderful man and, 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 you know, what a wonderful career and what a terrific show he had. Um, and I used to go to quite a few of his tapings and and actually made a lot of friends at those tapings because they were really long. They would go sometimes five hours long, and so the person you were sitting next to, you ended up talking to them half the time. And, and I, some of my closest friends today were actually, I met at those tapings, but that's, a, that's an aside. Um, I always think about that show and how the show ran so long, because I don't know James Lipton, and I'm not trying to make a joke but certainly if he were here it could be argued he might say i'm not the most exciting guy in the world but i probably watched every single one of them i think of the later ones where the kid comes out of the audience with a piece of paper and he does the back and forth the scene with kevin spacey there's so many different things like that where i just it blew me away yet Maybe I'm being rude. I I didn't go to the show because of James Lipton. But normally in network these days, if a guy isn't doing it, goodbye. Chris Spencer, late night vibe. See you later. We're going to bring in Sinbad. But he stayed. And uh, tell me, from your perspective of the network, how was it so that the branding of the network was such that you're in a situation where people are watching that show, but he doesn't exactly represent the demo that you're going for. How do you handle that? Yep. Uh, well, you know, not not all shows on the surface um, fit your brand 100%. Uh, but but there were there was enough. You know, James was such a you know Inside the Actor Studio was such an iconic show, um, and and we turned Bravo into at the time um, a show that that wanted to um, touch pop culture, wanted to help. You know, kind of contribute to pop culture, and James certainly fit that. I mean, you know, his show was a zeitgeisty kind of show, and that and that was the brand that we really set forth to do with Bravo, which is especially Queer Eye helped set that. You know, so you had you had Inside the Actor Studio, and then you had Queer Eye, and you could start to build a brand around this innovative, unique approach. Jim had a unique approach to interviewing. Queer Eye had a unique approach to, um, you know, makeovers. Because um, then the show we put on after that, that was a hit, you know, you wouldn't think would be at all a match with those, which was poker. So I remember Frances Barrick, who um, was the head of programming at the time, um, she came to me and she said, I want to do, I, I, poker is, is on some other networks and doing well poker on TV, which 
I was like, poker, really? Who, who wants to watch poker on TV? That sounds as dull as it could be. And I said, but how are we going to make it so it fits our brand? She said, well, I think we should do celebrity poker because... And she had gotten a pitch for this show. Um, celebrity po- celebrity po- celebrities were playing poker in the back rooms. Very, you know, like they were having private poker tournaments all over the all over Hollywood and and back in New York. And and so um, she's and Josh Molina, who's on um, Scandal now, but was on West Wing back then, uh, had pitched the show. And he was the one who told us. He sort of gave us that inside scoop that all his friends in Hollywood are playing poker and poker is becoming sort of like a sport. And so, again, it, it, you know, there was a that idea that something something is about to break, something is about to you know when Queer Eye came on, metrosexual had just become a term, and so we were right there with that pop culture moment, and so Francis and I believed that based on what we had heard that poker was going to come into its own and become part of pop culture, and so our in was through celebrities, not through sport. And so we decided to put Celebrity Poker on, and Celebrity Poker became... We were doing two-hour episodes, and they were, they were getting huge ratings for us. And which also had to be one of the lowest-budgeted shows you ever had to put it on was, in your life. Other than the fact that we needed uh, quite a bit of hair and makeup for all the celebrities, and I remember um, we had Ben Affleck came on. Um, we shot in Vegas, and Ben Affleck came on, and at the time he was dating Jennifer Lopez. And she came in, and all of Jennifer Lopez's people said to us, don't look at her. You can't, you know, it was a classic Hollywood, you hear it, you know, don't look at her, don't look at her, she's coming, but you can't look at her. And we're like, what? How can you not look at her? You know, she's beautiful. Why, why would we not look at her? So we, of course, we didn't listen. Um, and she, she was totally fine. She didn't say or do anything, but it was the people around her. I guess they were trying to create a brand around her at the time, you know, that, that she was untouchable. Um, but it was, it was, that was all real silly. That's incredible. I hope you don't mind. I want to go way back. Okay. Way back to the beginning. I believe you're from Bayside. Bayside, Queens. Bayside was also, speaking of Peter Engel and Saved by the Bell, was the name of the town. They were all, the school, right? They, were, they went to right. Bayside. They have nothing to do with one another. Bayside, Queens is, yes, where I grew up. Yeah, so take us back to your family, what it was like, what was the socioeconomic dynamic, and how you got into this business in a roundabout way. Um, we were middle class. We, I grew up in, a, um, in a, an apartment with two bedrooms and one bathroom. Shared a bedroom with my brother, who's two years younger than me. Um, but, you know, as there was no social media back then. There was, there was not as much, near as much information and communication. So we didn't know any better. We thought everything was fine. Um, I used to come home from my mom worked, my dad worked. I came home from school eight years old, nine years old, went up, got my bike, walked home from school six blocks, seven blocks, whatever it was, not that far, but far enough. Um, went, came home, had my own key, went into my apartment, met my friends downstairs, and the only rule was come home before dark. You know, there was no cell phones, so you didn't, you know, there's no way to communicate with each other. Nobody knew where anybody was. So, yeah, very different now than it was then. But, um, but you know, I had friends who had more than, than my family did, but we were happy and, you know, plenty of love in my house. So, um, uh, you know, went, uh, went through my childhood and school not really 
thinking much about what my future was going to be. As a well, actually, I should shouldn't say that. That's not true. Um, I grew up Jewish on and close to Long Island. So growing up Jewish close to Long Island, the message you always got from your parents, your friend, your family's friends were, you have to be a professional. Like you, most of our parents were not professionals. They worked in the garment industry. They worked, you know, they had small businesses. They weren't professionals. So the word was, you need to be a lawyer, a doctor, a dentist, you know, some sort of profession. So I grew up believing that I was going to go to medical school. And I had, you know, terrific grades and did real well. I went to a, um, a good state school in New York. Um, didn't have the funds to go you to... You went to SUNY Binghamton. I went to SUNY Binghamton. I was pre-med in most of my uh, college days. And um, I, I remember I went to take the med boards and decided to not take them. And I walked out. I went in the morning and didn't go into the school and just turned around and decided I didn't want to be a doctor. So you'd studied for hours and hours, hours, and, hours. and hours and you just walk in and you just say, fuck it. I, I, I didn't say fuck it at the time. <laughs> I just, I just said, you know what? I kind of don't like blood and phlegm. <laughs> and I think blood and phlegm are pervasive in the medical profession. And so I just thought about that and said, I can't do this. I just can't do it. And so I left and I was, you know, I was panicked. I didn't know what I was going to do. How'd you my... tell your family? Um, at the time, you're taking me back, but at the time my grandfather was dying of cancer and so my family was kind of preoccupied with that. And that was actually that was actually a real motivating reason why I realized I couldn't be a doctor because I would go visit him at the hospital and get very ill just just walking on the floor. And I realized that I did not have the stomach to be a doctor. And that was I just wanted to be a doctor because I wanted to make enough money so I could just move to the next socioeconomic class. And that's the wrong reason to do that and and I, I think many people choose the wrong reasons to do a lot of things in their lives, certainly in their careers. And that was probably the first time in my my life that I realized that I was um, I was doing something for the for the wrong reason, really wrong reason. Um, so I just I just there was a good business school at. Um, at, uh, at Binghamton and I just I kind of transferred to the business school at that point I'd already had enough um, uh, uh, enough credits in my major uh, which was um, a science major which was I think psychology um, and so I moved to the business school when I had I had another year and a half left of school and I took 24 credits which allowed you to have a business minor uh, and then I went to MBA school right you know, I just, I needed something, right? I didn't, I, college was over and I needed, I was graduating and I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. So what I needed was a couple more years of school. So I went to NYU and I got my MBA, which gave me another couple of years of time to think about what I wanted to do with my life. And um, I, 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 I remember very clearly, I was, uh, they, there was a lot of recruitment on campus um, and I and there was a book probably had about 90 job openings that you'd thumb through. Um, this was back in like '84. Um, you'd thumb through, 
and there was a there was a, a, a job recruitment for NBC's finance program. And I looked at that, and you know, there was also for accounting firms and for insurance firms and consulting firms and Wall Street firms, but there was NBC, and I was like, NBC, wow. Like, I could go work at NBC. I watched a ton of TV. I was definitely a, you know, I grew up watching an endless amount of television as much as I could get at the time. I mean, obviously it's nothing compared to what you can get now, but back then I watched on the th mostly on the three networks, I watched just about everything that they put on. Um, and so the idea that I could work at NBC, I didn't care what the job was, it could have been janitor, but this happened to be finance. So back then, how was the application process then? Because now what's so hard for people out there is you have to submit everything online. There's no number, there's no address. You have to stand out amongst all these applications and... Well, there was just, it was just a resume, like just submit your resume. There was nothing more than that. Mail it? Um, no, it was because it was a recruitment office that put out the book. You actually just gave the resume to the recruitment office and they sent them over in bulk to the company. But you didn't have anything on your resume. Oh, I had, um, I had good grades and I had an MBA with good grades and I had a paper route. <laughs> And you're right, I had so how did pretty much nothing. Out? Well, I didn't get the job. Oh, so I didn't know that. I did not get the job. So I did not get accepted to the NBC Finance Training Program. And this was probably, I probably found out May or June when I was graduating and I spent two months sitting at home. I didn't apply for a job, nothing, because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And um, two months later, the phone rings and it's NBC. And they said, um, you know, we had gotten your resume during, you know, when we were recru recruiting for, um, for finance. Um, another job has come up in planning and pricing in the stations division. Would you be interested? Now, remember, I'm sitting at home. I'm, I have not sent out a resume in two months. I'm just probably watching TV. And I was like, you know, when would you like me to be there? And I lived in Queens and I had to go into Manhattan. I set a meeting and I got that job. Um, so I was uh, administrator of planning and pricing. So you're going into your first interview ever. No one, there's no interview college. Yes. So what was it do you feel you did to get the gig knowing that technically speaking, you weren't as qualified as many other people who were applying to it? I think a certain amount of confidence and a certain amount of humility. So you can't be too confident, especially for your first job, right? You, but you have to be confident enough that they don't, you know, you, you want them to notice you. You want them to think that you're going to be able to survive, you know, a, what could be a, a, a difficulties in a, in a corporate environment. Um, so you want, to, you want to show a certain amount of confidence. But at the same time, you can't pretend you know it all because you don't. And I think I was pretty savvy about that. Um, I had gotten summer jobs in the past, jobs that I wasn't qualified for. So there, there's certainly a little bit of bullshit that you got to put in your first couple of jobs. Um, but I think most, I've certainly, I, I certainly know when I interview somebody, I'm really just looking for a certain spark. I, I, most of the time, they can learn on the job, unless it's being a doctor, which I don't really <laughs> want them to learn on the job. Um, but most of the time, you can learn and, you know, this, these aren't life or death jobs. Um, you still have to be qualified, but really mostly you want to see the ability in someone that they can learn, that they want to learn, 
that that they're willing to take direction, that they have enough confidence in themselves, but they have enough humility to know that they need to learn. I think I think that works out both from an interviewer perspective and from an interviewee perspective. So you get the gig there, and what is the first inspiration or what happens where you say to yourself this finance thing is not where I'm heading here I no. want to be in entertainment What's no I never that? said that I was thrilled to have the job and I was thrilled to work at NBC and I think I already made more than my dad was making you know 30 years into his career 20 years into his career so um, I you know I if, Financially, it was it wasn't a huge salary, but it was solid. It was you know more than my friends were making, and that's how I was probably uh, comparing myself at the time. Um, and it was and I loved walking into Rockefeller Plaza every day. I mean, I really did. It was it was a uh, you know Saturday Night Live was taped there, and I got to roam the halls of you know the eighth floor where Saturday Night Live was. And at the time, David Letterman had his show there. Um, and so just being able to roam the halls was enough, even though I was in finance and I knew, you know, you always, you heard back then, it's, it's a little less true now, but still valuable. Get a foot in the door, right? Get a foot in the door and then who knows what'll happen. And I ended up having a really incredible trajectory on the finance side for five years. I went from being an administrator of planning and pricing in the TV station division, and five years later, I was basically the CFO of NBC News. So I had this great trajectory, and I thought I was going to be a finance person. I really didn't think I was going to be a creative person or a programming person at all. No thought in your mind, like, God, this Letterman show or SNL, I'd love to be on the creative side of that. Nothing. I always thought that would be cool and I'd love to do that, but I couldn't imagine how I was going to do it. Now, I did have a couple of stints in production finance. So I was doing, you know, I was doing the finance of the, you know, of some of these shows, Letterman and, and Another World was a soap opera. And then I had touches of creative opportunities. So there was a big um, a big uh, Nabit strike back in 19, I think it was 1987. And I was, at NB I was at NBC Entertainment in the finance group at the time. And so we all had Nabit, we were all given Nabit jobs to cover the strike. So my job- what a Nabit job Nabit is, for, is a, for our Yeah, audience. Nabit is the union for technical um, uh, personnel. So cameramen, uh, control room operators were part of the NABIT union and there was a strike and the strike lasted for I, I think about four months. But anyway, my job was to be technical director, TD, for Another World out in, um, it was out in Brooklyn at the time. But the technical director sat next to the director and would, would call the cameras. So if the director would say camera three, camera two, camera four, um, the technical director would press the buttons for camera three. Cam and so I got two weeks of training to be a technical director. And then I was a technical director for Another World for four months of episodes in 1987. So if you want to go back to the archives and look at the episodes I hit, you will see that the camera was always a few seconds late to the, to the dialogue, because that's because I was the technical director and I was a finance guy. <laughs> uh, Another but, pattern of you doing something yeah, that you had no experience yes, doing. Yes, and I remember I had to do, um, there was one in the script, uh, and it was, um, I started the, first, the same day Anne Heche started. She was 17 years old, and she was a terrific actress. But I remember starting, I just remember that girl at the time because I had to do a 
a dissolve a, a, go, a ghost coming out of her body, which is a little more complicated than just pressing a button when the director announces a camera. And so I had to really figure out how it was. You ultimately do it with a dissolve by by pressing two camera buttons at once and then dissolving between them. One camera, which is on a record, sorry, you record one where she's sitting up and then, anyway, I guess it doesn't really matter how it's done, but I figured it out and I was so excited and proud and that I did it and then the director looked at me and the director was actually a guy named Don Scardino, who's actually a very successful, famous director uh-huh. now. Yeah. Terrific, terrific. What a wonderful guy. And he just looked at me and said, that wasn't very good. <laughs> <laughs> and so I did it like three or four times and we, we ended up getting... But anyway, that's where I said, wow, you know, this is so much cooler than finance. Like, I would love to figure out... So that was probably my first inkling that finance was not really where I wanted to be. But... Um, but then I went back to my finance job. The strike ended. I went back to my finance job. And then I ended up moving to news finance. And what happened in news finance is I was the manager of news finance. I had a director above me and a vice president above me. And the vice president was the CFO. And she reported to the president. Um, a new guy came in, Michael Gartner. He replaced uh, a guy named Larry Grossman. Michael came in. for some. Re- oh, and then what happened was you asked also where was the creativity or whatever. And... Um, so NBC had a, uh, a writer's program, a writer's contest, where you could write something and you could submit it. And so I wrote a script for Family Ties, and I submitted it. You wrote a script? I wrote a script for Family Ties, just out of the blue. I wrote a script, and I submitted it. And I came in third place. And there were 44 entries that year, third place. You know, I was a finance guy. I never wrote anything in my life. So the fact that I got third place, and the winner got to meet Brandon Tartikoff. Now, I wasn't the winner, so I didn't get to meet Brandon Tartikoff. But it was a life-changing moment. So there's a newsletter at NBC, and in the newsletter is printed the three winners of the contest. So it was the first two and then me. I don't remember the first two, but I remember me. And um, But it was also the same week that the new president of, or, or is this the new president of NBC had started and his picture was on the cover of the newsletter that that week and I walked into the elevator one day holding the newsletter and in walks Michael Gartner the new president and he's a you know he's a, a short man with a bow tie and you know but very recognizable and he looked at me and he said are you holding that because I'm on the cover and I said, well, actually, no, sir. I'm holding it because I'm inside. And he said, what do you mean you're inside? And, he, and, he, and I said, well, I submitted, I, I'm a, I submitted something for a, to a writing contest, and I came in third place. And he goes, oh, what do you do? And I said, well, actually, I work for you. I work in finance for you. And he goes, wait, you work in finance for me, and you wrote? Come with me. And he, I leave the elevator with him, and I follow him to his office. And Michael was a writer. Michael actually was a Pulitzer Prize winning, uh, he won a Pulitzer Prize for op-ed pieces. I mean, he's a a brilliant writer, and so he was very intrigued by writing. I'm not a writer at all, um, which is very interesting because my son, my youngest son, is a phenomenal writer. He's 17 years old, and he's won contests, and he's already done the Iowa Writers Workshop, He's, which, which we should talk to at some point because about gifts that you're given, that you grow up, you know, you don't, there's things you can't learn, there's things that are definitely part of who you are, and I think I, I would attribute some of that to my success, and certainly skills like writing and singing and art are given skills that you can learn and make better, but you're given a base. I think I was given a skill 
a, a creative skill that is very hard to identify that has allowed me to be successful. But we can get back to that anyway. This is what's so amazing for the audience. I always talk about fate. So you go that day, you go to pick up the newspaper somewhere and maybe you stop at a water cooler or you maybe stop to look out the window and you go in that elevator and literally like 10, 15 seconds earlier or later, you're not in that elevator with the president. And that ride in that elevator changed your life forever. Absolutely. Nothing you planned, nothing you strategized, the world just came together and your whole path changed because you were in an elevator with that guy. Right. And, and so, you know, look, you can, you can certainly help influence your life and your career, but more often than not, things are just going to happen by accident and there's nothing wrong with that. And I, I, you know, I tell my kids all the time. If it's not working out exactly the way you want, just give it some time. Eventually, it will, and you, you know the path will get created for you, one step at a time, as opposed to one path at a time. But it will get created. Um, anyway, I went into Michael's office, and he was just incredibly intrigued by this finance guy who could write. I really couldn't. I was just happened to write one script, and we became friends. And uh, he ended up getting rid of my two bosses over the next few months and made me from I literally went from manager finance to director finance but but even though my title was just one jump I was really the head of finance for NBC News and I was I think 27 or 28 years old Um, and as a result I became part of a strategic team that uh, that really helped create a lot of, um, that, that influenced a lot of great success at NBC News back then, um, and, and then helped really start my path to a more creative path. I think I told the story earlier, uh, at one point, you know, after doing all this financial planning and realizing we were never going to be profitable without a news magazine, that's when Michael decided to make me head of programming. So he never should have done it, and it wasn't, it wasn't not all the right path at the time. Um, but it turned out to be, you know, a great move for him, for the division, and certainly for me. And I did not take it well. Understand, like, I thought I was going to become vice president of finance. And I was more, it was more important to me to have the stripes of vice president than it was to become director of programming for NBC News. We technically took a demotion. I fought it. I fought it. I did not want it. I wanted that vice president of finance job. I did not want to be head of programming for NBC News. So... You know, and I can't tell you how many times in my career I was charged with something that I did not want. And I fought it, and fortunately my bosses were smarter than me and insisted on doing it, and many, many, many good things came out of those, what I thought were, were bad decisions. This guy rode many elevators with many people, but he saw something in you, and all along your career it appears that many people saw things in you, even today with all the stuff that's happening with TAP. You know, mentors are really important in your career. They really can help push them along quickly. I mean, you can do it on your own, but if you're ever lucky enough to meet somebody who's in a position of power who can just influence a change in your career, you can make leaps instead of, you can take leaps instead of steps. And and I had that several times and I'm very fortunate in that regard. I've mentored a lot of people um, 
I believe some that I didn't even realize I was mentoring. Um, some I was assigned <laughs> as a mentor. Um, I, I really do love working with people who are new in the business. I, 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 I love giving them um, advice. They don't have to take it, um, I, but I love shepherding them and I love watching them. There are many, many people who worked at MTV Networks when I was at VH1, which was, you know, which is part of the MTV Networks. Which I was going to ask you, like, because that was some of your proudest moments, but you left NBC to go to VH1 when things were going well for you at NBC. Why yeah. would you leave NBC when everything was going great and go to VH1, which was a place that obviously was a step down from yes. NBC? What was the point of that in your mind? Well, I got fired. One of the few guys who got fired and brought back. Yes, because I, I wasn't fired because of my performance. I, was fi I, I learned a very, very valuable lesson about corporate America. And it was shocking to me at the time. I had had a nine-year career at NBC. I had had nothing but good. I had every year. I always moved to a new position of, of you know, bigger salary, more responsibility. Um, but my boss, Michael Gartner, who was my mentor and a protector and um, a guy who gave me great opportunity, was ultimately let go or his contract wasn't renewed I, you take it any way you want there was um on our show dateline had a um a, a big scandal uh they had put incendiary devices um it was it was assume not assume what's the right word um it was um, alleged that there were incendiary devices placed on the gas tanks of gm cars and we did a piece on how GM cars in accidents exploded and and killed some of the passengers. To we we went to, we went to test it as part of the piece on Dateline, and um, apparently the producer of the piece put these incendiary devices. Now, according to as I recall, and some of this is vague, as I recall, um, they never. They never used the incendiary device. It was a backup in case the car didn't explode, but it didn't matter. We had a big red mark on the news division, and so as a result, my boss Michael got fired. He went back to Des Moines and ended up buying the the AAA farm team for the Cubs. So he's doing wonderfully, and he owns this 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 AAA baseball team and has had a, had a wonderful life. Um, but at the time, he got fired, and then uh, there was a change in management. The new guy came in, and he basically said to me, you, you know, how do I know you can be loyal to me? You were loyal to the, you know, you worked for the, la my, the, the guy who got fired who you were loyal to, so, you know, is that loyalty going to transfer? And I said to him, I said, look, I'm 30 years old. If I don't, if I can't learn to be loyal to a new boss, then what, you know, I have, it's going to be hard for me because I'm going to have hopefully many more bosses, but I couldn't convince him and he wanted his own team. And so NBC, you know, said, to, why don't you start looking for another job? They didn't fire me right away. They said, why don't you start looking for another job? They gave me an office on a floor with nobody else. You know, it's just me. And, um, and it was a really hard lesson. I, I learned that even talented people or even people with storied careers can get thrown out with the bathwater um, if, if that's 
you know, if that's how the dominoes fall. And so that's what happened. It was a really, really hard lesson. It was very hard for me to accept. Um, I racked my brain like, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? What did I say wrong? And sometimes you realize you do and say nothing wrong. It's just, it's part of fate, right? It's part of how things go. Um, and 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 you know what? It was ultimately the best. This you know the first best thing that happened to me was moving from finance to creative. But the next best thing that happened to me was getting fired because then I got my VH1 job. And when I went to VH1, I wasn't a finance guy who moved to programming. They hired me as a programming guy. They said, "Wow, this guy knows a lot about TV, and we know a lot about music, but not a lot about TV." And so when John Sykes, who's the president of um, VH1 at the time, when we met. He really wanted somebody who could take, you know, his vision of music on tele television for VH1. He he wanted it to be music, not what it had been, which was a combination of comedy and music and a bunch of stuff. He he actually came up with the I don't know if he came up with it, but he supported the branding of music first back then. And when he brought me on, he said, "Look, I don't need another person who knows music. I have so many people who know music. I need somebody who knows TV." And so I went there as. The first time in my career now as head of programming, I wasn't, finance was way past, in my past. I didn't talk about finance, it was just about programming. And like I mentioned earlier about Queer Eye, I got lucky there because there was a show called Pop-Up Video in development. And so I looked at Pop-Up Video and honestly my only contribution to that show was slow it down and make them bigger because I couldn't read it. Um, but Pop-Up Video went on the air uh, probably two months after I started there and was a big success. But Pop-Up Video was really valuable because what I, what I also noticed was that music performance wasn't working on TV. I remember you right? telling me that. And the reason music performance doesn't work on TV is it's just not, it's like fireworks on TV, right? It's not the same as being there. Why does it's, it work now? Well, it only works now with competition shows like American Idol. It doesn't, live music performance doesn't really work on television. And again, it doesn't work because it's not the same as being there. You go to a rock concert or you go, it's all around you, whether it's the audience screaming or the music or the bass is so loud. You know, a, a music performance moves you when you're in it. Um, but when you translate it to TV, it's just not that interesting. It's small. It's, but where it does work or what we realized, you know, when we saw with Papa Video, Papa Video was the stories behind the video. We also had a show called Storytellers, which was the stories behind the song. So what was the next best thing to do? How about the stories behind the music, right? The which was the original name for behind the music, was the stories behind the music. It just was a long name, so eventually we shortened it to behind the music. But that was a great way to take music and translate it to TV because you were telling the story of the band. And the nice thing about music and bands and musical artists is they very rarely have quiet lives, right? They're, they live on the edge and so their stories were great and traumatic and huge swings up and down. And so, you know, we, we came up with a show called Stories Behind the Music and became a huge success. Um, I worked with uh, a great uh, a great producer named Gay Rosenthal, who I called and said, Gay, I have this idea for a show. And, sh and I said, the sto first story I want to do is Millie Vanilli. 
And she said, all right, let me let me see what I can find out. For those of you who don't know, Millie Vanilli was two guys who had big hits, but then they found out that they weren't singing the hits. Other people lip syncing, which is actually a big hit now on Spike. But back then, it wasn't considered acceptable, and so they they you know they had this great rise and this great fall. And so behind the music, you know, was this story of rise and fall, and then more often than not, the rise again, or the the show itself provided an opportunity for rise again. And um, Gay called me up. I remember two weeks after I'd mentioned to her, and she said, "I found them, and they're coming to my house for a barbecue." And and um, and so that started uh, behind the music, and then another uh, another great producer, George Mall, joined in, and um, we had at one point about 250 people working on that show, and it became a huge, not just a huge success, but a brand builder for that network. And 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 wh- why I always tell people, VH1 was the best five years of my life and my career, because. You know, we just had this this storied five year run from a no a, a no a, a network that nobody gave a shit about to a network that people emulated and and um, it actually got me attention from people I had worked with before from Kevin Riley who I remember called me up and said you know I have an opportunity to go to cable there's a channel called FX what do you think and I said go because in cable you can actually make a difference in broadcast is really hard like it takes a long time but in cable one show you put one show on the air like everyone's going to be talking about you and he ultimately went there not he put on more than one show but i remember he did the shield and then he did nip, nip tuck and and that vaulted him from you know the 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 average development executive to the terrific development executive. Absolutely. So the same thing sort of happened to me with Behind the Music. So I'd be remiss if I don't talk about what I thought you would say was the greatest job of all time was when you were basically running everything at NBC Universal and I mean almost every single facet of the game. So here you are, you're in an elevator with a guy, it seems right. like yesterday. Seems and like now yesterday. you're you've navigated through you've been fired they bring you back how often does somebody bring somebody back who's fired and then you're in charge of everything and you have to make decisions to fire people like you were fired and you have to bring on people and do whatever can you talk a little bit about that and how there's so many arrows and so many people trying to take you down and take you out and I want to know how you handled that pressure and how you dealt with it and how you got to that level. Did you think it was possible to get that gig? Um, I, you know, at some point you realize you're on a you're on a path, you're on a trajectory, and you're, you're you know, behind the music was the second time in my career that I actually put a hit show on the air, and so I felt like if you could do, you know, once could be an accident. Twice could be an accident, but if if it happens again, then maybe it's not an accident. And so certainly when I was running Bravo and we put Queer Eye on the air, which was kind of the third time in my career that I had a huge hit. Three, I'd had one at NBC News. Um, I had one at VH1. More than one hit, but one huge hit. And then I had it at Bravo, and I had it at NBC Two with Biggest Loser and Last Comic and Apprentice. And um, once you you know. Once you you have done it multiple times, you really start, not only do you build a reputation, but you do build a certain amount of confidence. 
And so I, I was confident and am confident even today that I can recognize a good show, that I can create a good show, a hit show, not just a good show, but a hit show. Actually, I would say it's more about a hit show than a good show. If you're lucky, they're also good, <laughs> but there are a lot of hit shows that aren't so good. But I think I'm pretty good at recognizing what could be a hit show. Um, that is my gift. That is, you know, somehow that whatever little gene in me that, that allows me to do that, I was given that and then just owned it over the years of my career. By the time I became chairman of NBC Universal Television and had 16 networks, including NBC, Telemundo, USA Sci-Fi, Bravo, that was a culmination of my entire career. I couldn't have done that job 10 years earlier or 15 years earlier. But when I got it, I had done almost all the jobs along the way. I had done finance jobs. I had done development jobs. I had done digital media jobs. So I had so much experience, 25 years of experience, maybe maybe 23 years of experience at the time, that that, was just, that job was just a culmination of all of that. And I still didn't do everything right. I still was learning on the job. But I had enough confidence and enough experience, and frankly, and this is really important in your career, I had more experience than most of the people who worked for me. So when I told them something, I had credibility. When I opened my mouth, people believed what I had to say. Oftentimes, and it certainly happened to me at certain times in my career, you get into jobs that you're not qualified for. And so when you say something, you kind of misstep and people catch it and people know. And they don't want to listen to you when they don't think you know. And I've certainly had bosses. I've had people in my career, in my life, that I did not think knew either as much as I did or or in some cases less than I did, that it was very hard for me to listen to them. But by the time I had that job, there wasn't anything that I felt people knew more or better than I did. And when they did, I usually recognized it and listened to them. I worked for Barry Diller for one year in my career. In between NBC and and VH1, I actually had a little stint working for Barry. I think he had just left Fox Network and he bought QVC and he really had this vision for what turned out to be you know, what Amazon does, which is buying, he used to say, buy underwear in your underwear. So shopping from home. And that was his, his vision. So he, anyway, he, I worked with him and he, he used to come into the meeting and he would question you and you'd answer him. And then he'd look at you and goes, listen, I've been doing this for 25 years. You've been doing it for five. We're doing it my way unless you really believe and want to prove to me that your way is better. And that was a really important lesson because he was right. He had 25 years experience. Most of us in the room had five years experience. But, but that doesn't mean we couldn't have a better idea than he did. It just meant that if we did, we better, you know, we better have the balls to go for it and to convince him and to fight for it. And so I took that in my career and I and you know many you'll talk to many people who have met me over the years and and they said that I was tough like I I questioned them I and I only did it when I felt like I knew more than they did. And so I questioned them to see if they had the strength to to fight me on my point and and when they did I often and still do often let that executive or producer or whomever do what what they think is right. And I do this with my kids. I mean, my kids come, I've been there. I know more than they do. So when they say, no, I want to do this, and I know they're wrong because I've been there, I will say, no, you can't. But, and, but if they keep going and, and if they start making points that make sense, or if I realize that for them that might be the right decision, then I'll let them go with it. But I, but, but 
I make them fight for it. I don't just give in. Did you know when you took the job you were going to get fired eventually? I, you know, I didn't think – no, I didn't think so because I had run a cable group that was two-thirds of the profits of NBC, NBC Universal. So when I took on NBC, which, which was the, the place that I could falter, which was the place – I always felt that I would bring somebody in and distance myself and if anyone was going to take a fall, whoever came in was going to take the fall. I, I should never have been the head of programming for NBC. I should have never been the president of NBC. But it was so screwed up by the time I took it that I really wanted to understand what the problem was. And I felt the only way for me to learn what the problem was was to be it and to do it. And so I, 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 I acquiesced most of my other responsibilities and focused on NBC. I spent probably 70% of my time focusing on NBC. And then, um, and, and we actually, I stabilized it. I didn't turn it around, I stabilized it. I might have had success, it's hard to tell. I mean, the last show I bought before I left was a show called The Voice. <laughs> so had I made it six months earlier, I might have actually gotten some credit for it. I don't get much credit for it, and, and, and I would argue, I don't necessarily deserve much credit for it, but I will say I greenlit it because I did. Um, but but you know Bob Greenblatt and Comcast got lucky like I did to, you know twice in my career when I started to run VH1. Bob Greenblatt now the president of NBC. So when I you know when I was running VH1, Pop Up Video was in development there, and you know I took some credit for marketing it and bringing it to the you know bringing it to fruition um, and then uh, when I was when we bought Bravo Queer Eye was in development again I'll take credit for it um, but the guys who were there before and you know, the Rainbow Networks was the um, the owners and, and every time I see them they always say you know we had Queer Eye in development when you bought it so and they're right and they deserve some credit for that as well but I, it sort of reversed on me when I left NBC and the voice, you know, three, I left NBC um, February 1st of 2011. The voice went on in April of that same year. So three months later. And it was a huge hit. Um, and great for them and, and terrific. And, and Bob's done a great job, you know, shepherding uh, NBC in the last five years. And I don't want to take any of that away from him. Um, but, you know, these things happen in, in your life and your career. Absolutely. Six degrees of separation. Going to mention something, anything, a name, any situation, and just say what comes to mind. Donald Trump. Wow. Um, <laughs> I can't just so because the Apprentice. Yeah. So so we cast Donald in the Apprentice. Well, Donald actually came already cast in the Apprentice when I bought the Apprentice. Jeff Zucker and I bought the Apprentice um, back in I don't even remember the year. Um, and you know what? Honestly, I I I no, I, I didn't expect it to be a big hit. But Mark Burnett was the producer, and Mark Burnett had done Survivor, and you don't bet against Mark Burnett. So when Mark Burnett brought it in, we literally bought it in the in the office. We didn't think much about the show. The show wasn't even was barely developed when he brought it in. Mark, what Mark's pitch at the time was. Um, um, Survivor in the biggest jungle of all, Manhattan. And that was all we needed. And Donald Trump's going to be that whatever. It didn't even matter. And um, and then, you know, that became a huge, huge, I think that's where that started, became a huge success. And, um, and Donald, you know, D Donald was, um, 
a very easy guy to work with. He was, um, he listened, he always showed up on time, I and mean, he has a terrific work ethic, he really does. I'm not condoning some of the things he says or ha has said, but his work ethic was terrific, and he was um, very, very respectful of certainly me, everybody I worked with, and everybody on that show. Um, I, you know, I'm a little surprised he's gone as far as he's gone. I certainly didn't expect it. <laughs> um, but I think he's pointing to, you know, certain things in our country right now that that we've we've um, quieted, we've, you know, we've held back, we've, we've suppressed, and he's given certain people, 25% of the population, the ability to sort of say, yeah, you haven't heard from us in the last five years or so. Um, so it, I, I, I continue to, to watch like everybody else in amazement. Lorne Michaels. Um, I, I, I don't know Lorne all that well, and I only had, I know him for many years, but I only worked with him for the two years I had NBC. There's not a person I miss more at, from NBC than, than Lorne Michaels. He, you know, 25 years into my career, he taught me, even in the, the short amount of time we worked together, so much. He was also incredibly respectful and, and incredibly supportive. And anytime I needed, um, I needed someone to, you know, to listen to what I had to, I called Lauren. Any, you know, comedy was such a problem for us. I always called, called Lauren to see what he thought. When, when I was dealing with um, the Conan O'Brien, Jay Leno situation, Lauren was there every step of the way. Um, he's a, it, Lauren's um, oldest son and my oldest son also were going into college at the same time, so both our kids were looking at schools at the same time. So we, we had the opportunity to, to take, to get to know each other, not just professionally, but on a personal level as well. There's, there's not, I don't think there's anybody I respect more than Lauren Michaels. Awesome. Leno and Conan, <laughs> that situation. You were right you know, in the fire. Of that was, as they say in literature, the best of times and the worst of times. This, so is, is, when, it, this is when Leno was moving to prime time and Conan was going to the Tonight Show. You were all involved in it. Um, it was a horrible experience. I had three weeks of sleepless nights, but at the same time, probably the most exhilarating experience of my career for all the wrong reasons. Um, but I was, you know, I was in the news every day. What we were doing was in the news every day. That doesn't happen a lot in your lifetime, and, and nor do you want it to, especially for an infamous reason. But, but it was very exhilarating, and, um, and I don't think I ever want it to happen again, but you know, I'm not sorry it happened. I, I do think I, I made quite a few mistakes back then. That that was as much as I thought I was ready for a job like that. You can't necessarily be ready for something. Uh, you know, social media had really just started to influence what was going on, and and. I remember waking up one morning with 6,500 emails. 6,500. Um, yeah, I mean, shut down the servers at GE, and it was, you know, it was, uh, it was, it was a mess, and probably a, a story for another podcast. We can, I, I'll be happy to share all no the problem. details. And I have a smile on my face before I ask you, the famous bathroom. 
<laughs> Thank you for asking that. Um, <laughs> because you're famous for the people, you know, what happens to executives, they get budgets to renovate their offices and do whatever they want to do. And it's a great thing. You have that advantage. And it always fascinated me about that story because you elected to do something with and make a special bathroom. Right. So, um, you know, it's interesting. It's one of those things in your life where... You kind of suspect this could haunt you at some point, but you decide to do it anyway. The bathroom was not two hundred thousand dollars. The bathroom was about fifty thousand. It was an office suite that they 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 helped build. Um, it had a conference room, it had an office, and it had a bathroom, and that was about two hundred thousand dollars, which was a lot of money. But but in all honesty, I had a new six year. Cr- contract that was worth a lot more than $200,000. So it was a fraction of that contract. I was very lucky and grateful that, that I was... looked at all the money you made for the company. Yeah, you know, I had made billions of dollars for the company, but it wasn't, it really was not, it was not that I just wanted a bathroom. Well, I shouldn't say that. I did want a bathroom. I want, but there was an office three floors above me or four floors that had a bathroom. And I said, I just want to move up there. And they said, no, we want you to be on the floor with your executives. We'll build you, you know, we'll build you a bathroom. I was like, okay, that, you know, it didn't sound like a big deal. What's a bathroom? If I built a bathroom in my home, it would be $25,000. And I think $25,000, that's fine. So then they give me the plans and they show and everything's ready. And they, sh- you know, and I, and I look at the bathroom and, and, and I'll give you if, you, if you don't believe me, I'll give you the name of an executive who I ran into their office right after I looked at the plans and said, you can't believe how big this bathroom is that they want to build for me. And when I said to them, I don't want such a big bathroom, I just want a toilet. They said, they said, it has to be handicap capable. Oh. So it has to be a certain width. And, and then they said, and we want to put a shower in because you know, you're not going to be the only person who house, is housed in this office. So the other offices that we're talking about have showers. And I said, well, I don't need a shower. I've never showered here. I'm never going to shower here. And they said, we're just going to put it in. <laughs> so they built a bathroom, handicap capable with a shower. So it was probably half the size of the conference room we're sitting in. So it's a pretty big bathroom. And somebody on the floor, somebody who pretended to like me but clearly didn't, <laughs> Um, they, you know, I, I, I suspect it was someone in finance, but there's also someone else I suspect, but I never found out who called the press that like the day I was leaving NBC, <laughs> I'd been fired by NBC cause new Steve, this Burks. is another story cause a, you know, another change in management, a new company came in Comcast company and people I respect greatly. But you know, as Lauren Michael said to me, this is, you know, another Lauren Michael, um, uh, point. He said, Jeff, when someone buys your house, they change the furniture. And you're just a piece of furniture there. So I tried not to take it personally anyway. But the day I was leaving, this story about this bathroom comes out. And I had been taught in the past, if you didn't want to make a story bigger, just keep your mouth shut. So I kept my mouth shut and I didn't tell my side of the story. But because of social media, that bathroom story, everybody clicked on it and popped to the top of Google. And and so anytime you type my name now, the bathroom story, it, the gold, it says I have gold toilet seats. And they no one ha- ever had a picture of the bathroom, no one ever had any explanation of the of the story behind the bathroom. But but I became known as the infamous bathroom guy, and and it actually hurt me in many ways because I had started talking to private equity. We don't have to explain what private equity is, but they're finance guys who help 
you know, finance different businesses you want to go in. And every one of them probably Googled me before I met with them and saw that bathroom story and thought, this is a prima donna, this is a guy. And, you know, look, I'm, I'm a guy of humble means who, who lived an American dream and built himself up to, you know, to a great career. Um, I just wanted a bathroom that I could pee in while I was talking <laughs> to my wife so I didn't have to leave my office to go to a, a small bathroom that tended to have other people in it. So I had to go back to my office without peeing and I didn't have time in the day to pee. So I really just wanted an office so I could pee Norm, when I wanted to. Norm McDonald at SNL just had bottles all yeah, over the board. That's, but now, you know, several years later, I, it's a great story to talk about and it's an icebreaker. And, and, and um, actually it's lowered down. Fortunately, I've done other things since then. So it's now lowered down on the Google search. Uh, Sometimes it doesn't even show up, but thank yeah, you for bringing it up. No, it's great. Three quick things and then we're out of here. Proudest moment in show business. Um, in show business. Everything you've done, your proudest yeah. moment professionally. Um, I think when I got the NBC job, that was when I was proudest. I just, you know, I, I remembered being in finance at NBC, just looking, you know, kind of through the, the doors of the entertainment side. And then all of a sudden to be the chairman of the entertainment side, that was probably my proudest. That is my proudest moment. And also my most infamous, but that's okay. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to propel yourself to the next level. Um, when I left NBC this this last time, it was a huge disappointment because I finally got the job I had wanted for a long time and I'd worked very hard for. But I, I took it. Um, I took the experience and applied it to my actually my home life and to my family. And I and I, my kids didn't grow up in a two bedroom one bathroom apartment. Right, my kids always had their own bedroom with their own bathroom, and they've always lived in a big house. And they've had you know they've been to multiple Olympics and multiple Super Bowls, and they've been on private jets. And that's not a great way to raise your kids. And so when this happened to me, and I got fired for a second time, I went to my kids. And it was very hard, um, but I said to them, I go, I want you to understand and I want you to see what happened to me and what's going to happen to me in the next few years to understand that there will be things that happen in your lives that suck, that are horrible, that you think are the worst things that will ever, ever happen. And you will get through them and you will move on and you will do more great things. And I use this experience to explain that to them because at the time I believe my son didn't get into A band, he was still in B band and he was heartbroken. And I said, you know what? It's only a temporary setback. You will get into A band, which he did the following year. But at the time it seemed like the worst moment in his life and I tried to use my experience to get them to understand this sucks and this is one of the worst moments in my life, but you will see we're all going to do just great. Well, that's fantastic. Last question. What advice would you have for the young professional in our business or any business that's starting off, you know, from scratch, doesn't yep. even know where they're going or somebody who actually is in the sausage factory and getting the arrows from all over and uh, or and also for artists that you've seen uh, in terms of talent to get to the next level and have the kind of career that you've had? Uh, passion will take you a long way. Um, you know, persistence. You have to be persistent those first few times. And and luck, you know, you can't create the luck, so you have to you have to put yourself in a position where maybe maybe you will be 
in an elevator with somebody who will ultimately uh, help your career. You can't just sit back at home waiting for the phone to ring. Um, you really do have to be active uh, and, and make and, and understand there's going to be a lot of rejection. Uh, sometimes you have to take jobs that you feel are beneath you. Give it a chance. Give it some time. The, the, the best advice I can give, and I, I give it to my son who calls me every, you know, every once in a while and says, I'm not happy. I want to do something else. And I go, if you keep going back to start, you'll never finish. So why don't you do this for a few years, get a promotion or two. Then if you're unhappy, then go look for something else. But at least you'll have a few years behind you so you don't have to start at the beginning again. If you leave now, you're going to go back to being you know, an assistant or a PA on a production. You're going to have the lowest job and you're going to have to you know, start from scratch. So do, do something for a few years. Have something. And, and if you can enter, if you, can enter um, you, know, if you want to be in entertainment, but you're not in creative yet, but you can enter through finance or you can enter through PR, you can enter through one of the tangential sides of the business, that's fine too. You don't have to start you know, exactly where you want to be. You can, you can get to the same place slightly, you know, a, you know, a different route. And if, you know, I'm, my son actually works in PR, and I say to him, that, you know, PR is a great entry point for entertainment. And if you look at, I think there are more studio heads right now that started in PR than any other function, any other functionality. Dana Walden over at Fox, David Staff over at CBS, Plepler at, who runs HBO, they all started in PR. So you don't have to start in development if you want to be in development. You don't have to all start in creative if you want to be in creative. But I will suggest you do something for a few years so you can understand what it's like to progress. Don't keep trying to go back to start. Jeff Gaspin, fantastic, unbelievable. Thank you so much. You're amazing. And as always, this is Industry Standard. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamer they have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave... 
please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.